Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Good evening. My name is Andrew Banfield. I'm the head of School of Politics and International Relations in the College of Arts and Social Sciences here at the ANU. It is my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's talk, Crafting Democracies, Learning from Political Leaders to Shape the Future, by Professor Abe Lowenthal. Before we begin, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. A bit of administration before we begin. Uh, please ensure that your mobile phones are turned off as this is being recorded by ABC's Big Ideas program and it would be unfortunate to have a phone call in the middle of it. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this evening's chair, ANU Chancellor Professor Gareth Evans. Professor Evans served in Parliament of Australia for 21 years with great distinction. He held a number of cabinet portfolios, including Attorney General, Minister of Resources and Energy, Minister of Transport and Communication, and of course, Foreign Minister. It is in that post where he was universally lauded for his roles in the peace plan for Cambodia, the founding of APEC, and of course, the responsibility to protect doctrine. He also has a new book, uh, which I'm sure he's willing to sign, should you have a copy. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the ANU Chancellor, the Honorable Gareth Evans. Well, thanks very much, Andrew Banfield, Jackie Lowe, Dean Tony Mackay, and ladies and gentlemen. It's my very great pleasure on behalf of the ANU, the School of Politics and International Relations, the Centres for Latin American and European Studies, to welcome to the platform here my very old friend and colleague, Professor Abe Lowenthal, Professor Emeritus of International Relations of the University of Southern California, uh, President Emeritus of the Pacific Council on International Policy, non-resident fellow, Brookings Institution, and now visiting fellow at the Melbourne University School of Government. I guess in my long experience, I found that there are two kinds of international relations scholars. I'm not talking about those who wear nightcaps to bed and those who don't. I'm talking about those who, on the one hand, are deeply comfortable with the world's messy realities and those who are not. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that anyone in the IR school in CAS is in the latter category, but let me tell you, Abe Lowenthal is absolutely of the kind that is deeply comfortable with messy realities and deeply at home in trying to untangle the mysteries of real-world political institutional behaviour. He does have a superb uh, scholarly record, uh, multiple degrees from Harvard, at which he's in various incarnations, 
taught along with um, being a fellow or a professor at Princeton and Oxford and Jerusalem and multiple other places, including a number of Latin American universities. Uh, he's got huge publishing record, 15 books, 100 or so uh, articles in referee journals, 200 plus uh, newspaper op-eds in the finest tradition. Most of that work um, concentrated in Latin America, but with a considerably wider range as well, which I'll come back to. But beyond all that scholarly activity, uh, he spent very big chunks of his professional life working in the policy-related business. Council on Foreign Relations, at Brookings and elsewhere, at the Ford Foundation, but more particularly in actually establishing and developing three very prestigious think tanks, the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center, Latin American Program, the Inter-American Dialogue, and above all, etched in my memory particularly, the Pacific Council on International Relations, where Abe once invited me uh, a few years ago to speak to this group, which is a combination of think tank and forum for policy debate in uh, California. And uh, he asked me to talk about perceptions of American foreign policy. And it was a task that I uh, warmed to with great relish, so much so that the, um, the former governor of California, Pete Wilson, a story that Abe is perhaps better equipped to tell than I am, got up in a condition of extreme dudgeon and said that while he was normally a courteous person, I had stretched him to the limits. And uh, Abe was looking on rather dolefully as all this was happening because Wilson's an extremely influential supporter and I think he could feel the financial wreckage of his institution uh, beginning to accumulate around him. But, um, so Abe and I go back a long way. We've had some, uh, we've had some fun times together. But these exercises, I think, have led him to, um, to have made a major contribution to the literature in two other areas than simply Latin American studies. And one is on the, an issue dear to my heart, given all the years I spent at International Crisis Group, on the craft of think tank institution building. And on that subject, he's absolutely fascinating. But he's also written a lot, and this is the subject of today's talk, on the craft of democratic governance. His topic, as you've heard, is, and as you know, is the craft of democracies, learning from political leaders to shape the future. The whole question of managing transition from authoritarian environments to democratic ones, achieving that transition peacefully, making it stick, what works, what doesn't. He's drawn in the studies that will form uh, the basis of his talk, the interviews uh, with which he's formed with his colleague, uh, the views that you'll hear, uh, have involved um, conversations, discussions, uh, interchange with a cross-section of important transitional leaders in many different parts of the world. It's a fascinating story that he's about to tell and I'm delighted to welcome him here to the ANU platform, Abe Lowenthal. Thank you so very much, uh, Gareth, for that very kind introduction. It's indeed a great honor to share the podium with a man who personifies international cooperation to advance core values. Uh, mention has already been made of uh, Gareth's new book, uh, The Cabinet Diaries, 
Um, I don't have enough background to appreciate all the references in it, but I've been reading it. I've read the first 85 or 90 pages, and it is a delicious read, uh, giving one a sense of how politics is done in this country, or at least how it is done uh, by one of its ablest practitioners. Uh, my aim today, as Gareth Evans said, is to introduce you to a fascinating project that I have co-directed with my good friend Sergio Bitar of Chile, one of the architects of his country's democratic transition, and a cabinet member in three different Chilean governments. Sergio and I were approached by International IDEA, an intergovernmental organization of 29 nations, including Australia, which is in fact the Asian regional headquarters for International IDEA, uh, and is represented here this evening by Nyla Grace Prieto. The organization has the mission of promoting and strengthening sustainable democratic governance worldwide. International Ideas then Secretary General, now Chief of Staff of the Norwegian government, Vidar Helgesen, invited us to interview political figures from different regions around the world who had played leadership roles in diverse transitions from authoritarian rule toward enduring democratic governance. The project's goal was not primarily to contribute to academic theory, but rather to learn from qualified practitioners how such transitions have been achieved, and to convey this experience to contemporary and future political leaders, to civil society and NGO leaders, to journalists and the media, as well as to people in governments and international organizations interested in expanding and reinforcing democratic governance, and indeed to citizens around the world who want their voices to be heard and heeded. Although the project is not aimed at the academic world, as I've just said, we think it makes a contribution to scholarly analysis, especially by restoring some focus on political leaders their strategic choices, agency, and interactions, and indeed the role and importance of political leadership itself. We interviewed 13 leaders from nine countries in four different major regions of the world. Fernando Enrique Cardoso from Brazil, Patricio Elwin and Ricardo Lagos from Chile, Ernesto Cedillo from Mexico, who has never previously been interviewed on Mexico's democratic opening which occurred during his presidency, Felipe Gonzalez from Spain, Alexander Kwasniewski and the late Tadeusz Maciejewski from Poland, Tabo Mbeki and F.W. de Klerk from South Africa, Jerry Rawlings and John Kufor from Ghana, B.J. Habibi from Indonesia, and Fidel Ramos from the Philippines. These leaders of generally successful and thus far unreversed transitions played different roles. Some were incumbents in authoritarian regimes who were ready to help move toward democracy. Others were leaders of opposition movements and some were bridge figures. The interviews we have done do not amount to rigorous political science with testable hypotheses, statistical analyses, and the like. But we think they do provide something more exceptional and at least as useful, distilled political wisdom. 
Nowhere, as far as we know, can one find such a treasure trove of insights on the politics and political economy of democratic transitions from those who have actually been successful at this craft. Although the book will not be out until next year, about uh, April or so of 2015, we don't therefore want to scoop ourselves entirely, I would like to share some of the highlights, hoping that they will whet your appetites. We begin our overview by outlining the broad contours of these nine transitions. In that section, we make six points. First, these transitions were processes, not events. Iconic moments can play a vital role in catalyzing or dramatizing political transformations. But the road toward democracy often begins years before and extends years after these visible moments. That's a point that the international media usually doesn't get, as was very clear, for example, in the coverage of Tahrir Square uh, a couple of years ago. Second, most of these transitions had advances and retreats, zigzags and unexpected contingencies. There was no one clear path toward democracy, and all the roads were complicated with many byways. Third, many of these transitions began with years of quiet spade work and relationship building, which were not generally visible at the time, but were actually critical in shaping the transitions. Fourth, although these transitions had some common qualities, they differed in starting places, in sequences and trajectories. They both started and ended differently. But fifth, despite their diverse origins, paths, and outcomes, these transitions also shared some common features. They were all undertaken mainly by domestic actors and processes, but they were all importantly affected by the broad international context and by specific external actors. Most of these transitions involved explicit or tacit negotiation between authoritarian incumbents and opposition forces. Many faced thorny issues of civil-military relations, control of intelligence and security forces, and transitional justice. And many of them reached what we consider a political transition toward democratic governance in an incomplete, imperfect, and uneven way. Finally, similar and recurrent issues arose in these diverse transitions, not in a necessarily linear or chronological sequence, but as clusters of imperatives, which are separable for analytic purposes. We highlight four such clusters, preparing for a transition, ending the authoritarian regime, making and managing the transition, and stabilizing and deepening it. We argue that transitions from authoritarian rule toward democratic governance present inherent tensions, and that managing those tensions is the central challenge for political leaders. Trying to understand the hard choices these leaders faced is at the heart of our book. The great contribution of our volume, we think, comes not from our analysis, but from the individual interviews, where the leaders, in their own words and voices, explain what they did, how, and why. 
In our final chapter in the book, we distill what we think is most relevant for those who want to undertake or support democratic transitions now and in the future. We cover a lot more than I can present in a brief lecture, but let me emphasize nine key points in a kind of telegraphic fashion. First, these leaders believed that it was important to take advantage of even partial opportunities to move forward rather than to reject incremental progress in the hope of later being able to make a possible but not assured much bigger change. They consistently gave priority to gaining ground, even when some vital priorities could only be partly achieved, and when some important constituents and supporters were making demands that the leaders considered unviable. Rejecting maximalist positions sometimes calls for more political courage than adhering to those goals or hewing to attractive but perhaps impractical principles. Transition making is not a task for the dogmatic. Second, although accepting unsatisfying compromises was sometimes necessary, these leaders also understood the need to consistently project a broad, hopeful, and inclusionary vision of what the transition would eventually signify. They emphasized the way forward rather than concentrating on removing past grievances. A compelling vision of the longer term future for the whole society, combined with more modest promises for immediate gains, helped to overcome pervasive fear and to sustain very complex transitions through stressful periods that involve dangers, costs, and disappointments. Third, encouraging convergence, forging consensus, and building coalitions among opposition forces were all vital, both for achieving these transitions and for beginning to construct democratic governance on a sustainable basis. It was important to connect the democratic political actors to social movements, including workers, students, women's movements, human rights groups, and religious institutions. Connections at the elite level were obviously important, both within opposition forces and between opposition forces and some in the authoritarian regime. But so important was the sense among the wider public that democratic movements were truly inclusive and not merely vehicles for particular individuals or narrow groups. Accomplishing convergence required focusing sharply on what united people rather than on what divided them. But it also required, in a number of cases, making difficult decisions to exclude or marginalize groups that refused to renounce violence or that insisted on uncompromising demands for regional, ethnic, or sectarian autonomy. Fourth, creating and protecting spaces for direct dialogue among opposition groups and between government and opposition leaders was often critical. It was vital to build bridges between political movements and other sectors, including business groups, professional associations, religious groups, and civil society organizations, some of which, after all, had cooperated earlier with the authoritarian regime, 
but now seemed ready for neutrality or perhaps even to defect. Think of the role of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, in quite a number of these transitions. These leaders thought it was much more important to invest in building future-oriented relations than to sort out disputes about the past. Fifth, drafting a new constitution or amending an existing one was typically an essential but a difficult and sometimes dangerous task. That process inevitably opened important debates on fundamental issues, from social and economic rights to the design and details of the electoral system, from the role of the military to the reform of the justice system, and the issue in some cases of regional autonomy. Electoral systems and procedures were often matters of strong contention as was the legalization of previously banned political groups that authoritarian governments had considered subversive. Several alternative approaches were employed for designing a new constitution. But whatever the process chosen in each case, the leaders we interviewed emphasized the importance of engaging a wide range of participants in drafting a constitution and trying hard to accommodate the core demands of key contending groups to the extent possible. This was important even when it meant reluctantly accepting, at least for some time, cumbersome and indeed in some cases outright undemocratic procedures, as in Chile, for example. In some cases, such as in Brazil, Transition leaders determined that building broad support for the new constitutional document required incorporating certain aspirations that they knew might eventually need to be revised. All these leaders understood that whether the constitutional text would become truly permanent mattered less than whether its framers could achieve broad buy-in regarding its main terms and legitimacy whether they could establish consensus on a framework for moving forward, and whether they could agree on a way, one that was neither too easy nor practically impossible, to amend the Constitution at a later stage when conditions warranted. Although the exact wording of a Constitution obviously matters some, it also matters how it is adopted, when, and by whom. It was more important to reach agreement on the procedures by which political power could be obtained and challenged than to specify in advance the precise details of political representation. Compromises were often required in order to achieve broad participation in the political process, even when these reduced the authority of elected officials and created the need for further adjustments in the future. Sixth, most of the leaders who worked to end authoritarian regimes and foster democratic governance began by building or reviving political parties, investing heavily in those party-building efforts. Political parties have lost credibility and strength even in many established democracies. Indeed, we've been here three weeks and we've had occasion to notice that. And attacks on partidocracia are common in many countries. 
But parties have played important positive roles when they are not merely the vehicles of individual political figures and their cronies. Institutionalizing political parties takes time and continuing attention, but early and sustained investment can pay rich dividends. Seventh, in almost every case, a key challenge was to bring the armed forces and other security institutions under civilian authority, but at the same time recognizing their legitimate roles, their appropriate claim on some level of resources, and their need to be protected from reprisals by former opposition forces. These issues were handled differently from case to case, as our interviews show vividly. But it was generally necessary to remove or retire the most senior officers responsible for torture and brutal repression, to place top military commanders under the direct authority of civilian ministers of defense, and to insist firmly that active duty military officers refrain entirely from political commentary and partisan involvement. It took a lot of judgment and courage to determine when a ranking officer needed to be removed and when it was better to look the other way. And more generally, how best to harness military discipline to strengthen democratic governance. It sometimes took repeated confrontations over several years between democratic governance and elements of the armed forces and or the intelligence or police agencies some of those confrontations highly visible, others not visible at all. It took plenty of these to firmly establish civilian control. The interviews we did include marvelous anecdotes about these issues. Eighth, I think I'm gonna need my folder there. Eighth, most transitions had to face issues of transitional or restorative justice. There was strong political and social pressure to hold members of the former authoritarian regime accountable for human rights violations and blatant gross corruption. There was no simple formula for handling these complex questions. These interviews underline how important it was to address them openly, emphasizing both recognition of victims and measures to achieve mutual tolerance if not reconciliation. The tension between drawing a thick line between the past and the present, as Matsyevetsky and Kufor emphasized, for example, and recognizing and remembering the abuses that has occur had occurred so that they would not be repeated, as stressed by Ilwin, Lagos, de Klerk, and Mbeki, the tensions between those points of view cannot be easily resolved. Most of the leaders struggled one way or another to respect and try to reconcile both these objectives. In Indonesia, where human rights violations were swept under the rug, the unresolved issues remain problematic. Ninth, external actors Governments, international and multilateral institutions, corporations, trade unions, religious organizations, international associations of political parties, and other non-governmental entities helped support 
most of these transitions. International actors facilitated access to prior experiences about the recurrent issues that put transitions at risk, civil-military relations, transitional justice, judicial reform, the conduct of credible elections, police reform, the oversight of domestic intelligence agencies, right down to the details of disarming hostile surveillance and intelligence activity. Aspiring transition makers and democracy-promoting external actors need to understand both the potential contributions and the limits of external involvement. Democracy can take root in a society only after it becomes the most accepted way to contend for political power. International actors can sometimes do a good deal, patiently, quietly, and at the request of local actors to reinforce movement in that direction. But they cannot take the place of domestic actors. Having a broader understanding of the many difficult challenges and obstacles that must be faced in transitions, and of the considerable time it may take for democratic governance to take hold, should help international actors avoid impatient, ineffective, and counterproductive interventions, of which there have been several, and instead enable them to contribute more consistently over the longer term. They are more, most likely to be effective when they listen, raise questions that arise from comparative experience, and encourage local actors to consider issues from various perspectives, rather than promote prepackaged answers. Now, if you excuse me for a moment, Don't worry, I've done more than half. <laughs> but I'm a little puzzled as to what I've done. Just give me a moment here. Better? Not better. No, that's okay. Excuse me just a moment. I'm sorry. Certainly not good for the radio broadcast. This is the one you sent me. Can okay. Yes. Sure. What are you up to? I'm sorry. Assessing our interviews, we concluded that there is no prescribed central casting model for a transition leader. The leaders we interviewed included experienced politicians, lawyers, and economists, a senior military figure, a junior military officer, a journal editor, an academic sociologist, and an aeronautics engineer. These people had different religious beliefs and practices ranging from devout to non-believing, including Catholics, Protestants, and a Muslim. The physical presence and personal styles of these people differed remarkably, from Habibi's slight stature to Rawlings' huge physical projection, from Cardoso's brilliant exposition to Ramos's broad generalities, from Cedillo's understated demeanor to de Klerk's forceful personality. Some of these people were not, in fact, Democrats, 
by temperament, conviction, experience, or reputation. Jerry Rawlings ruled for a decade in Ghana as a military dictator and agreed to hold open multi-party elections under domestic and external pressure only when secret public opinion polls showed that he would win such an election easily. De Klerk was committed for many years to apartheid and its exclusion of South Africa's large black majority until he became convinced late in the day that the system was no longer sustainable for economic, political, and moral reasons. B.J. Habibi was an intimate associate of Suharto, Indonesia's long-term dictator. Alexander Kwasniewski, a junior minister in the communist government in Poland, eventually helped strengthen Poland's new democratic institutions and practices. Whatever their backgrounds or motives, these leaders shared some common qualities that helped them succeed. Each had, some from the beginning, others developing clearly over time, a strategic sense of direction toward more inclusionary and accountable governance, and a fundamental preference for peaceful and incremental rather than violent or convulsive transformation. They diversified and expanded their own bases of support and worked to weaken intransigent elements both within the authoritarian regime and within the opposition. They were able to assess the interests and influence of multiple power centers and interest groups and work to find paths toward political compromise and accommodation. Many of these leaders mustered great patience, persistence, and stamina in the face of opposition, obstacles, and setbacks, and were able to persuade others not to lose heart. That was a fundamental contribution of political leadership in several cases. They had the self-confidence needed to take difficult and timely decisions with calm conviction. Some of these people were by nature highly analytical and reflective. Think of Cardoso and Lagos, for example. But even they managed consistently to look forward rather than to second guess their prior decisions. Most relied heavily on competent associates who shared political values and specific expertise in order to deal with difficult issues. Although they could indeed make, and did indeed make key choices personally, most of them concentrated mainly on building consensus, forging coalitions, constructing political bridges, and communicating consistently and tirelessly with key constituencies and the broad public. And when they intervened on a personal basis, to make a decision that would not have been made by their advisors, often that was decisive. I think, for example, of our interview with Patricio Elwin in Chile, who told us that he had two groups of advisors, the political group and the economic group, and that he took their advice on 98% of the issues that he had to deal with as president. He considered them smarter and better qualified on these issues than himself and saw no reason to second-guess them. But when his political team told him that he should not establish a commission for truth and reconciliation to look at the issues of transitional justice because it was too dangerous and it might very well lead the armed forces to overthrow the government yet again, he dwelt on this subject overnight, came back the next day and said, yes, it's a risk, 
but the risk of not doing this is greater. We have to establish such a commission, uh, which became a model not only in Latin America, but elsewhere in the world. Although these leaders were deeply grounded in their respective national societies and relied primarily on domestic relationships, each of these leaders knew how to mobilize external support without becoming or, or being perceived as foreign instruments. Above all, these leaders adjusted rapidly to events and used unexpected turns to seize the initiative. They did not determine the direction and pace of the turbulent currents, but they managed to help guide their countries to calmer waters and toward eventual democratic governance. It's indeed hard to imagine that these nine transitions would have been so successful without these leaders and their decisions. Of course, they did not work on their own. There were other key leaders in each country. Think of Mandela, Tutu, the King of Spain, uh, uh, Ulysses Gumarais and General Geisel in Brazil and Cory Aquino uh, in the Philippines. Uh, in, uh, yeah, in the Philippines. And all the leaders together could not have achieved success without broader social, political, and civic forces. But these leaders did play important and vital roles worth studying. The prospects for building democracies in other countries now and in the future depend in considerable measure on the emergence and performance of such leaders. In his interview with us, Felipe Gonzalez of Spain noted that political leadership is not learned in university courses, not even in ANU and the Melbourne School of Government is it adequately and fully learned, but rather in actual practice by applying broad principles to concrete circumstances. And citing the late novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Gonzalez suggested that people often learn such broad principles from anecdotes, from narratives of remembered experiences. That is indeed the fundamental premise of the International Idea Project and of our volume. Political actors and communications technologies change rapidly, but the imperatives of political action are much more permanent. Mobilizing for political freedom, building spaces for dialogue, constructing convergence and consensus, forging agreement on procedures and rules of engagement, and reassuring opposing forces that their fundamental interests will be protected will remain vital priorities even in the days of social media. Establishing mechanisms to deal with issues of transitional justice and memory, to assure civilian control of military, police, and intelligence forces, and to protect both civic order and individual human rights will continue to be central challenges. This is true both for those seeking to end authoritarian governments and for those who are trying to counter a reversal of democratic gains by governments that were fairly elected, but then weaken or ignore the necessary checks and balances of democracy. Social movements and civil society organizations enhanced by modern electronic networking can pressure governments and other institutions. But though these actors and their techniques can be helpful, they cannot, we think, replace political parties 
social organizations, and political leaders in the difficult tasks of building electoral and governing coalitions, winning public support, preparing on a sustainable basis, preparing viable public policies, calling for sacrifices in the common good, inspiring people to believe that democracy is possible and governing effectively. The importance of vision, patience, persistence, and openness to compromise will therefore continue even in today's world. Future leaders in individual countries from Myanmar and Fiji to Cuba and the Middle East will have to consider carefully which aspects of prior experiences elsewhere are relevant in the specific circumstances of their own countries. Knowing that many of the issues they are confronting have in fact been experienced before and understanding the different ways these have been handled should be immensely helpful. We hope that political leaders around the world can be inspired by the qualities and achievements of the political leaders whose reflections are presented in this project. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, we're here at the Australian National University and we've been listening to Emeritus Professor of the University of Southern California and now visiting fellow at the School of Government at Melbourne University, Professor Abe Lowenthal, talking to us about crafting democracies, political leaders, managing transitions from authoritarian to democratic rule. Abe said at the outset of his talk that one of the objects of this project that he was describing was to distill political wisdom. Well, I think we've had the equivalent in this respect of a very fine malt whiskey indeed. It's uh, been enchanting to listen to some of this stuff. I wish to God I'd had it available when I was leading the International Crisis Group for 10 years and trying to craft transitional peace building strategies in a lot of these countries. This is an extraordinary distillation of wisdom and I've had the good fortune to see some of the extended material on which this uh, summary was based. Let me just ask uh, a couple of questions to get the ball rolling. First of all, Abe, about the methodology of this whole enterprise. It's well known that politicians, when given half a chance, are not averse to smoothing over or varnishing uh, history. When you publish a diary, as I just have, your misjudgments are there for the world to see because you're recording it as those judgments were being made. But when you get a chance, often years later, to tell the story of how brilliant you were in managing a particular process, are we getting the whole truth or are we getting some slightly glossed up version of it from at least some of them? What, can you tell us about the methodology and what you believed you were getting in this respect from your 13 leaders? Thank you very much. It's a fair, good question. Indeed, we anticipated and in our introduction, we discuss exactly that. Uh, and we point out that it's impossible to know whether the leaders who we are interviewed, even if they were absolutely sincere in their efforts to remember the past and absolutely honest in projecting what they think they remember, even in that case, one cannot be sure that their memories of the uh, issues and complexities are accurate and so on. So w what do we think about th this? Well, first of all, we think 
that there is no substitute for extended interviews with people who have actually made decisions in the heat of battle. There, there's no substitute for understanding how decisions are made uh, on complex political issues. You, you can take all the studies that have been published in comparative politics and the American Political Science Review with all of the uh, uh, sophisticated methodologies uh, and they will not tell you how crucial decisions were taken and why. So it's an input that ought to be there, even if it's imperfect. Second, um, Bitar and myself, Bitar is Chilean, I have worked most of my life on Latin America. We probably knew enough about the Latin American cases uh, to be able to be quite uh, pointed in our questioning and you get a, the reader gets a condensed version of the questions we asked. We, we, they were more complex in the telling but we didn't want to clutter up the pages with, with ourselves. But we were quite well informed on the Chilean, uh, Brazilian and Mexican cases. To differing degrees on the other cases, honestly we started with a low uh, degree of knowledge. And we did not feel we should interview these people on the basis of the knowledge we had. So we were able to organize a process with the help of international idea, whereby we had a leading country expert on each country, often from the country itself, prepare for us a background paper on the nature of the transition and the key issues that arose, and recommend to us substantial reading to do. We did that reading diligently, we prepared the interviews. Uh, we then met with the country experts after the interviews and discussed some of the issues. We did some follow-up questioning. And I think, and so far this has been true of everyone who has read any of the interviews, because we have shown individual interviews to various experts to get a little bit of appraisal and so on. So far, people think these interviews have the ring of authenticity. That doesn't mean that they are not varnishing and, and shading here and there. But I would end my response by just sharing something which I found quite meaningful. In our interview with Patricio Aylman, who by the way was 91 when we interviewed him and still in good shape. Uh, when we interviewed him, he told us of a couple of specific issues on which he disagreed profoundly with Ricardo Lagos, who by then had emerged as the leader in the Socialist Party and part of the Concertacion of the coalition that succeeded in getting uh, Pinochet out. And he told us about these differences of opinion, what they consisted in, and why he stuck to his position, he having become the uh, chief, the head of the coalition, the Concertacion, and eventually its presidential candidate. Some weeks later, we interviewed Ricardo Lagos. And without our making any reference to the, to the interview with Elwin, he of his own accord, in the course of a two and a half, two hour and 45 minute interview, brought up exactly the same points, told us in absolutely consistent, virtually congruent ways about the disagreements that he had with Ilwin about key points, and then added 
you know, he was right, which I thought told us a lot about both Ilwin and Lagos. Uh, and it also told us that we were getting uh, really uh, some fundamentally important points uh, uh, being made. It doesn't mean that, I mean, obviously, the interviews ranged, as I think you know, Gareth, from two hours to five and a half hours with Cardoso over a two-day period. Most of them were about three, three and a half hours. Uh, we were pretty efficient in asking questions. We were prepared, so we knew where we wanted to go and so on. But still, there's a limit to how much you can cover in, in that kind of space. So there's much more to be told. And all the graduate students and, and uh, uh, young faculty and so on that want to do better than we did, we strongly encourage it, both with these cases and with the many cases we couldn't cover. Let me, from the chair, ask just one more substantive question before throwing it open to you. The very first lesson learned you mention is about the virtues of incrementalism. One can understand, of course, the desirability of not making the best the enemy of the good and grabbing an opportunity as it arises, but very often I've found that um, going for the big bang is a rather better way of getting a result. And that was reinforced by a discussion I had last night um, interviewing in a fundraising event, F.W. de Klerk, who's in Australia at the moment. And he said that the biggest single key to the success of his management of that transition was what he did in February 1990, quite unexpectedly, breathtakingly unexpectedly, so far as the community and analysts and commentators were concerned, when he made this announcement to the parliament, which he simultaneously, you remember, uh, released Mandela and all the other ANC political prisoners, unbanned the ANC and commenced the process of formal negotiation for majority rule. I think also in this context, although it's not an internal democratic transition context, it's more a conflict one, but the Israel-Palestine issue, of how much better in retrospect we might have been uh, with a big bang sort of end game first approach to getting a resolution of that rather than the Oslo incrementalist approach where everybody becomes uh, the prisoner of the last extremist on either side as you try to inch your way forward. And at the International Crisis Group, we were very much in favour of a big bang and then reverse engineering to actually deliver. What, what have you got to say on this issue? I was a bit surprised that, I mean, I can understand the point you're making, but I was a bit surprised that you made it the very first in your list. Isn't there often another way of doing this stuff? Thank you. Well, again, it's a very good uh, observation, question, comment. I don't know if I can get that to stay there. Okay. Um, first, obviously, uh, different situations differ, and we don't pretend to have a, you know, a, a, a cookie-cutter approach. But I think we emphasize that point because uh, often in these transitions, and we live through them in the Latin American case, Bitar himself imprisoned for 14 months on Dawson's Island after the overthrow of Pinochet, having been Minister of Mines in, in Chile uh, and uh, working for years to change the political situation there and so on. Um, very often the commentary by the learned class of, of academics and journalists and uh, people who stand at one, two, three, four steps removed from the political process and comment on what's going on. Very often their comments have been that the 
transition makers have compromised too much uh, and, and uh, did, did not uh, go for the Big Bang and that it would have been good if they had done so. And I think we looked at these cases with something of an open mind about that question and felt that, you know, it worked best when there was the more incremental approach and a willingness to compromise. Tahrir Square occurred shortly before we undertook this project. And of course, we followed events in Egypt. And that might be a case uh, of, uh, you know, where it might have been done in a more incremental way. Um, just to give you an example, and I know there are others who want to ask questions, so I'll just add one more thought. But there, there are a number of examples, and of course, as we said, as I said, the beauty of this book is not the analytic summary, but the interviews themselves. But you look, for example, at the Brazilian situation, where the Brazilian opposition to the military government had succeeded in building up a great deal of popular support, and they they tried to push that uh, opposition by calling for direct presidential elections because the military was controlling a political system in which they couldn't lose. Uh, and a lot of very good people with values that you and I share, and I dare say most or all the people in the room share, uh, were certainly very sympathetic to the campaign for Directas Ya direct elections now. Uh, but Cardoso was one of those who said, you know, the military is not going to allow direct elections. The more we push for them, the more they will have to be repressive because they won't give on that, it's too risky. So what we need to do is surround them with evidence of public opinion until the most intelligent of them come out of their fortress to try to make a deal. And I think that was brilliant. Well, if we keep the questions and answers shorter than mine have been so far, we'll um, have time for maybe five or six questions. Of, there's at least that many hands up here in the Great Hall of the People of University House at the Australian National University. Uh, we are recording this for ABC, so we will need the microphones. Can the microphone go first to the uh, lady in the second front row? I think you had your hand up? Yep, sure. And please introduce yourself. I'm Tracy Fenwick from the Department of Politics. Um, I just had a question actually on case selection. Um, I, you know, if you go back to the whole transitions of authoritarian rule from Whitehead, O'Donnell, and Schmidt, or um, Argentina and Portugal were huge cases. So I was just wondering a little bit about your case selection as to why you didn't include those cases. And, you know, I, I could come up with possible reasons, but I was curious to hear from you. Sure. Well, the, the, again, we anticipate this question uh, in, in our introduction. Um, first, we realized we would have to do a small number of cases, um, and we wanted to do them in different regions of the world uh, and to have a mix of different kind of opening situations. And we wanted to, to do them in countries where one could have access to people who played truly leadership roles in the countries at that time. If Raul Alfonsin had been alive at the time of our uh, case selection, I personally would have pushed to include Argentina. But we really didn't think that there was an appropriate 
person of that kind of stature and involvement in the process in Argentina. So we wound up uh, choosing three Latin American, two European, two African, and two Asian cases. The, in some ways, more important uh, question underlying it is we chose cases, and I, I conceded in my very first uh, moments of my talk that what we have done is not uh, kosher modern comparative politics, but it may provide insights into political wisdom, which modern comparative politics usually doesn't provide. Uh, and by that, one of the things I meant, we chose cases uh, of relatively successful and unreversed transitions. And to make it kosher, you would have to do all sorts of comparisons with cases that didn't come out that way. You can't choose, you know, just on that basis. But we felt in finite time, and each of us is getting on in years, we wanted to keep this project short, and we're not going for a PhD. Uh, we felt the cases we chose were, were quite apt. Sakuntala Kadid Gama School of Diplomacy. Uh, it's unfortunate that Cody Okino was dead and that we didn't have the opportunity yes. to in interview a woman leader. Uh, but did Ramos provide perspectives of her leadership? And would you be able to uh, deduce that there are different styles of leadership between men and women? Or uh, what was her contribution to the Philippine transition? Thank you. It, it was perhaps hard for some of you to hear, so let me try to repeat the gist of the question, which was it's a shame that we couldn't interview Cory Aquino in the Philippines, who has passed away before our project, and that uh, General President Ramos had a very different style, uh, and whether we had uh, given consideration to the role of women political leaders uh, in these transitions and whether there are differences and so on. Um, indeed, uh, we point out in our introduction that uh, all nine of the, uh, all 13 of the people we interviewed in all nine countries uh, were male, uh, and that there really were not in these cases surviving female leaders uh, who could have been interviewed. And that not only would it be important to have interviewed females uh, who, who served at the chief executive level, but there were certainly very important role of women's movements uh, as part of the civil society mobilization in a number of these countries in Chile, Brazil, South Africa, the Philippines, uh, and uh, uh, Indonesia, and a number of the others. Um, we asked questions of the leaders about the role of women, and their answers are incorporated into the text. But without being disrespectful, I would say that few of them had anything very insightful to say. So we recommended to International Idea that a special chapter be commissioned on that subject. And so Georgina Whalen of the University of Manchester uh, conducted interviews with female activists uh, who played roles in the transitions in these nine countries. And she has a separate chapter, which is the penultimate chapter in the book, on the role of women's movements and women political leaders in these transitions, which has a number of very interesting insights, and they, they belong to, to be credited to her rather than to us. Thank you. Gentlemen there in the middle. Yeah. Hi, <clears throat> I'm Tom from the a student at the School of Politics and International Relations. 
it seemed like the narrative you were telling suggested that the practice of policy was often as much an art as a science, that in making difficult choices, you needed uh, a degree of sort of prudence as well as courage. So I guess my question is this. Uh, in your opinion, of these uh, people that you interviewed, who do you think best exhibited this mix of sort of courage and prudence as a leader? I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer that question, uh, certainly not without thinking about it from that uh, standpoint. I do agree with you that it took prudence and courage. It also took uh, skill and luck, or virtu and fortuna, as one of the early political scientists uh, put it. Um, but uh, I, I would say a number of them had that combination of, of qualities. And uh, I came out of this exercise uh, certainly with different levels of respect and admiration among the nine, but I don't think I would dare pick one at least under the pressure of a, the podium. Um, I'm very curious to know why did you choose to interview Cardozo uh, when he was not the president that did the transition? So was it because you were friends which I know is, 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 is an important part of that. It, you could rely on, on, on his storytelling. Um, uh, or uh, was it because there was something else that took more time in the Brazilian case uh, to, to pick up uh, um, uh, that, that you wanted to emphasize? Uh, and, and in that regard, how, how, can you, how could you uh, control for the storytelling part or the Cardozo is a very uh, charming uh, uh, man and also a sociologist that has worked on transition for a long time. So how can you control what's his interpretation of the events and, uh, and, and what actually took place and what were the decisive moments uh, in, in that story? Well, uh I repeat, first of all, that these, this is not a book of histories of the transitions of these countries. An entire long book could be and has been devoted by more than one author to studying the Brazilian transition. This is focused on learning from key political actors how they understood the roles that they played and how they understood decisions of critical importance that were being made in the different countries. In the case of Brazil, which having confessed large level of ignorance about many of these cases, without pushing aside false modesty, neither Bitar nor I are ignorant of Brazil. Uh, and we felt that the best single uh, person to help us reflect on the questions that we are concerned to see uh, approached by people who played important roles uh, was Cardoso. Um, yes, both of us have known him for a number of years, and yes, I consider him a, a personal friend, as I would say is also the case with Lagos. Uh, but we felt that the role he played from the late 1970s, uh, actually even from the 1960s in establishing a think tank doing independent social science research on policy issues under the conditions of the military government uh, at Sebrap. Uh, and then the roles he played uh, in the legislature, in the constitutional drafting, 
eventually in public policy and as president, allowed him to see and comment on a variety of these issues. And all I can say is that read the interview before you dismiss it as mere storytelling. I think it was, in fact, an extraordinarily good interview. Uh, Bob Lowry, my interest is primarily in Indonesia, uh, but I want to ask a general question. Uh, but before I do that, I, I'd like to say that most Indonesians would find it hard to believe that your longest interview wasn't with Professor, uh, Dr. President Habibi. Um, I, I couldn't understand what you said. Uh, uh, Indonesians would find it hard to believe that your longest interview was not with Habibi. <laughs> Um, I know from what you've said that your, your con the concentration of your work is, is questioning political leaders who are taking their countries through the transition. But in the process of that, and, the, and given the, the, the distribution of countries that you've taken the interviews from, did it illuminate in any way for you the, the preconditions that are necessary for transitions to occur in the first place? Uh, unfortunately, the microphone isn't quite working for. Did it dawn on you what? Yeah. Given the. No, you have to talk in the mic because otherwise it gets lost in the ABC. I presume it's on there. Um, given the number of countries and the and the geographic distribution of the, the countries that you uh, interviewed people from, uh, did it shed any light on the preconditions? for a transition to democracy for you? Um, uh, first of all, reference was made, I think, by the first questioner to the history of studies of transitions from authoritarian rule to democracy. Reference was made to the classic study edited by O'Donnell, Schmitter, and Whitehead. Full disclosure, I should uh, disclose that that was a project of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin American program when I was the director of that program and I invited uh, those people to put that project together. And they put it together in a context in which all of the South American countries but Venezuela and Colombia were under authoritarian rule. And they were wanted to do a study on transitions from authoritarian rule to democracy ahead of its happening, not retrospectively, but asking the question, under what circumstances could this happen? And part of the animus of the project was precisely questioning whether the previous emphasis on preconditions was really the right way to approach these things. And that actually democracy had emerged in a number of different parts of the world and a number, number of different times of history in different kinds of circumstances that made one wonder whether there was an absolute set of preconditions and put a great deal more emphasis on contingency and on agency and on strategy. And they made a tremendous contribution. Over the years, I think the emphasis on agency and on political leadership has declined. There's been a lot more quantitative study and so on and so forth. We consciously made a decision to try to return a little bit to that emphasis on, on political leadership. And, you know, I'm not sure that we claim proving anything irrefutable. All we, all we claim is that if you want to know how transitions were made and some of the crucial issues that arise and how they were dealt with in cases that succeeded, 
You won't find a better place to do that than in these interviews. That's our claim. It's, it's uh, not, you know, enough. Final question, the gentleman. Um, Atem Atem is my name, uh, and I am uh, based at the uh, European Center here. Um, and my question to you is, I have so many questions, but you know, there's no time to do that. But it's the involvement of uh, international community uh, and the external uh, entities um, in terms of supporting transition. Um, the, the observations that I, I, I make and I see is uh, a lot of these external forces that come in, and I come from a region where you know, I could see what is happening, and I'm a product of those interventions and things like that. Um, sometimes they come in with their own interests. Um, and my question to you is, how did the leaders you talk to actually deal with that having uh, these external forces coming in with their own interests, and then this leader who is having his own interests uh, and the interests of his country. So how did they reconcile that, and what can we learn from that? I'm glad that's the final question, because it's a good one to, to end on. Uh, let, let me say, first of all, that your question is, a, is right on point, and it's one I've given a good deal of thought to even before this project. Uh, I edited an earlier book called Exporting Democracy, the United States and Latin America. And the central thrust of the book was that democracy is not an export commodity, that it needs to be imported and developed uh, by people who are deeply grounded in local realities. Um, in the transition literature, and particularly in the O'Donnell Schmitter Whitehead volume that is widely regarded as the founding text of transition studies, there was very little attention to the external uh, sector. And really it was explicitly uh, put aside. Uh, there have been enough cases that we were uh, pretty sure that international actors played important and different roles in a number of these cases. We asked the leaders about this. Often they tended to underplay, at least as we assessed it from our independent research, uh, the international role, but they certainly didn't deny it. And I think the bottom line that we took, and which I referred to in my remarks, is that the successful ones knew how to mobilize international influence to support democratizing tendencies. They were not passive recipients of external pressure or influence. And of course, they all understood that not just some, but all international actors have their own motives and reasons for what they are doing. But that doesn't mean, as it's true of the rest of life, and certainly true of all politics, that you take into account the motives of all the actors, but figure out what there is that might be achieved by drawing on motives of, of different sorts. And the international role in a number of these cases uh, was important, was helpful in a number of cases. And we also know that there are a number of countries in the world where that international role has not been helpful, has been cynical, or ineffective, uh, one could go on without wanting to make another lecture out of it, 
And we think one of the basic differences was that you had political leaders in these countries who knew how to deal with the international sector rather than being overwhelmed by it. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks first of all again to School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU and the Centers of Latin American and European Studies for hosting this event. Thanks to Professor Abe Lowenthal for a tremendously compelling presentation in his lecture and in the answers that he gave to your excellent questions. It's a book that I think when it comes out next year will make extraordinarily compelling reading. It won't satisfy all the purest methodology people among you, but it's sure as hell going to satisfy a lot of the rest of us who found this kind of compilation of real world, real life, hands-on experience communicated in the superb way that it is in the text that I've seen in the forthcoming book. It's uh, created just an extraordinary uh, store of material that is going to serve policymakers extraordinarily well, I think, for many years ahead. So please join me in thanking all the people I mentioned, but in particular, Abe Lowenthal. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.